Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm George Sapio, and our guest this week is Ithaca College Assistant Professor, Director, and Playwright Wendy Dan. Wendy is the director and co-author of Sammy and Me, a one-man musical with Eric Jordan Young. Sammy and Me has had productions at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, the Hangar Theater here in Ithaca, New York, Musical Fair Theater in Buffalo, and the National Black Theater Festival. Wendy has also worked at the Dallas Theater Center, Syracuse Stage, Capitol Repertory Theater, Kitchen Theater, as well as serving seven seasons as Associate Artistic Director for the Hangar Theater. To play The Strangest Thing was a finalist for the 2010 and 2012 O'Neill Theater Center's National Playwrights Conference, and she received the 2013 NIFA Fellowship in Playwriting. Her next play is The Liberator. It's in development. She's a founding member of Breaking Bread Theater. Wendy holds an MFA in directing from Syracuse University. One of the things I wanted to talk about was, I mean, I, we started talking about how we knew each other, and we do this for years, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I know you as an IC professor, yeah. acting, director, playwriting just seemed to be kind of a new thing that just sprung out. It's like, oh, Wendy, write yeah. plays. Okay, <laughs> tell us about the new one. Sammy and me got me excited about writing, and I started writing a lot of other things. Um, I have a couple of plays that I've been scribbling away at, and one that I'm really excited about is called The Liberator. Mm-hmm. Um, which my, just got a, a, a reading at the Spring Rights Spring Festival. Festival. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. One scene at the Spring Rights Festival, okay. um, which is really helpful to hear it with an audience, right. as you know, of course. Oh, yeah. And um, it's a play with music. I wouldn't call it a musical. Okay. Uh, it's definitely a play, but it has music that I'm writing with a composer, Sarah Pickett. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's writing the music, and we're writing lyrics together. Gotcha. But the music is a little more like Greek drama, you know, where you'd have a chorus come out and do rhythmic and toned okay. choral strophes, yep. if you will. And um, the story is about two abolitionists, Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, right. both newspaper men, of sure, course, yeah. who were passionate friends. And mm-hmm. they worked together for about 18 years, agitating for immediate abolition. Right. And they were trying to use moral suasion, you know, just talk to people. Right. And eventually Douglas said, you know what? It's been 18 years. It's not working. Right. We got to do something else. And he uh, started his own newspaper, the North Star. Garrison's paper was the Liberator. That's where I get the title. Right. And um, he split from Garrison. He joined up with Liberty Party and they tried to um, use legislation, you know, use the actual constitution of the United States to, to force people to force abolition um that'll change their minds really yeah and garrison's argument was you know what you cannot make it a political issue this is a human issue if you make it a political issue it's got to belong to a party and once it belongs to a party the other party is against it by default which i thought wow this sounds familiar uh yeah (laughs) kind of like global warming or you think about a lot of issues today human issues um, right, exactly. Gay marriage, or you know, you think about certain issues that feel like these are civil hydrofracking, rights. ecological, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the air yeah. we breathe, the water we drink. These are mm-hmm. human issues. This cannot be tied to a political party. Right. Um, that was really what Garrison was fighting for and saying: if you do this, number one, it's not going to work. You're not going to legislate how people think. Right. So when that doesn't work, what are you going to do next? And so he was sort of predicting, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to turn to violence. And he was, uh, Garrison was convinced that they were going to set the country back hundreds of years. Mm. 
And so I'm imagining these two men who loved each other. I mean, passionate friends. Right. And that they agreed on the goal, but they could not agree on how to get there. How to get there. And they couldn't tell the future. They couldn't tell what's going to work. Right. And so now when we look back, I just find it fascinating to look at, hmm, two Americans, a black American, a white American, who cannot agree on how to make this happen. Right. And I thought, you know, this is a story that we need to tell again. Right. And, uh... Where are you in the writing stage now? <laughs> I'm about four and a half years in. It's a long process. Wow. Okay. So much research, of course. Yes. I really need to know what... Okay. See, that's my next about. question. Yeah, because... <laughs> I was unfortunate enough to get into a, an historical play myself. I decided, yeah. oh my God, I just fell in love with Richard III. Possibly the worst character in the world to A, fall in love with as a historical thing, and the ultimate worst to try writing about because nobody knows nothing about nobody. <laughs> and I went through how many books? Probably 30 some odd books. Uh, all right, you say four and a half years? Mm-hmm. I had two and a half years of solid research before I ever wrote a word, and then it took me another two years to do this. That's right. <sighs> exactly. I started this probably. I started reading in probably December two thousand eight. Yeah. So it's probably longer, I guess, more like five years. Um, so where does Wendy Dan the historian go up against Wendy Dan the playwright? Good question. I was just yeah. reading an interview with Paula Vogel about artistic poetic license mm. that people take. You know, her play Civil War Christmas. Uh, how much license do you take as a playwright yeah. um, with history with events? Uh, and of course, I'm thinking. You know, how I need to be loyal to the history. Yeah. But sometimes you're building a story and it's like, gee, it would be a lot easier if this event happened over here and then I could move this around. Uh, so I've taken sure. a little bit yeah. of license with, gee, when did they go on that speaking tour? Mm-hmm. Uh, when were they in Cleveland? When did they hit Buffalo? You know, certain license I'm taking so that it has an Aristotelian structure. Do you find yourself sacrificing the truth of the chronology for the truth of the story? In small ways, yes. And I've asked a couple of historians I trust to read it and say, tell me what's bothering you. Tell me the red flags. Tell me when you want to stand up and walk out of the theater saying it didn't happen that way. And both of them said, no, I'm not feeling that. I mean, I know that you've you've moved things slightly, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't bother me because you've captured the truth of what happened between these two men. So, yeah. 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 When when are we going to see this? Good question. I would love to see it now. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Let's put on a show, kids. No, Sarah and I are still writing the score. Uh, We have a retreat this summer, um, a two-week retreat to finish writing the score. And then Breaking Bread Theater, which I'm a member of in New York, wants to produce a reading, hopefully in January 2015, to kind of springboard it into the awareness of the industry, Mm -hmm. see if there's any theaters or producers out there who want to take a chance. Right. So you're a founding member of Breaking Bread. I am a founding member of Breaking Bread for... How'd that happen? Because you obviously don't have enough to do in your life at this point. That was exactly the conversation. Uh, It's four Ithaca College alumni. One, Joe Calarco, who's a dear friend of mine. I remember R&J, yeah, sure. Yeah, Yeah. and he and I were roommates in college and roommates Mm -hmm. in New York. And he and I talk, as we all do. Yeah. About we should have a theater company oh, yeah, one day. Yeah, you know, everybody sure. says yeah. this. Mm-hmm. You toss around that phrase for twenty years. Exactly. And uh two friends of ours, Jen Waldman, who's now the artistic director at the Hangar, uh-huh. and her best friend, Steve Pasek, who is the artistic director of Eleventh Hour Theater Company in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, they had been tossing the same phrase around for oh twenty years. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, one fateful day, Jen Waldman meets Joe Calarco in New York City, and they both say, "Huh, 
Interesting. We All four of us have been saying this for how long? Let's make it happen. I don't think you're the only four, but yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> born with it. So those two decided they were really going to make it happen, and they called Steve and I up and said, guess what, you're coming along. And I have to admit, I was sort of kicking and fighting a little bit, saying, I have a full-time job. I'm going up for tenure. I'm writing plays. I'm doing all this other stuff. Yeah. I don't know that I can... You know, I had thrown six years into Sammy and me, mm -hmm. all my time, a lot of my resources, and I have to admit I was a little reticent. But hearing Joe and Jen talk about their mission and that they wanted to springboard new musicals into the world, not necessarily productions, yeah. but just putting a new musical like LMNOP was the musical we um, produced a reading of a year ago. Right. Just putting it out there into the airspace to say, hey, theater world, listen to this. Somebody should do it. Um, and Good Speed Opera picked it up, and that's the mission, to say, we believe in this. Someone should do this piece. Right. Um, sometimes our own work, but, you know, Good LMNOP was not our work. It's another writing team we believe in. And so, so that's the mission. That's Breaking Bread, and they've committed to the Liberator. So Excellent. Hopefully that's the next reading we put up. I know there's so many theater people out there who want to do this, who want to bring work to the public eye, who mm -hmm. give work, you know, like there's just not room between the lack of funding and the lack of theaters and what it takes to actually put a theater piece up it takes months of planning. If you're going to do it right, weeks of rehearsal, you know, tons of money. Yeah. You know, if you do it that way, it's just so difficult. It is so difficult to put up a play, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you're younger, there's so much naivete that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Like when Eric and I, you know, started Sammy and Me. Yeah. Like I said, we're just pushing the sofa over and saying, all right, grab a chair, grab this, you do this, I'll do that. And it felt like when you were in your garage when you were eight, and yes. you're like, you hold up the sheet, I'll run through it. And then, you know, <laughs> like, you're just doing this stuff, and then five years later, we're in... Atlanta and you know there's 40 people hanging the lights and we were laughing we were yeah. out in the house going we were just kidding around no, no, you know no, no, no. and like yeah. all of a sudden people are <laughs> look doing what you it. started now um and I think sometimes that innocence is necessary to just take the leap and know that hey if the work is good other people will pick it up and, yeah. um with the liberator that's been a little harder I mean the attorney who represents Sammy and me I pitched him the idea of the Liberator, and he looked at me and he said, "Ugh, it sounds nutritious." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm afraid that it's not as much. Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison are not as much of a hook as Sammy Davis Jr. I am someone going to steal that line, by the way. It's perfect. <laughs> I said, "What do you mean, like a PBS special? You're supposed to watch?" And it's he like, said, "Yes, exactly." The equivalent of eating your vegetables. Mm -hmm. It sounds. It sounds thrilling, though. Actually, it's. Because I know from my own historical research is that, you know, Garrison was not the easiest man in the world to get along with. And single-minded is such a lame a way of describing him. Um, I mean, I can't wait to see both of these characters on stage. Seeing local actors mm -hmm. read these roles. I just had my mouth open. Yeah. You know, wow, yeah. I'm, and I'm listening going, wow, they said that? Oh, I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Damn, I'm good. <laughs> so it was. they really brought it to life in yeah. a way that I didn't even imagine. Uh, so you've been doing, th you've, you graduated from IC and I, then. Yeah, I graduated from IC in 93. I was an actor. I had a degree in acting. Right. I have, you know, I feel like I've hit almost every discipline in theater. I started as a dancer as a teenager. Okay. Well, from like age four. 
dancing. Right, well, yeah, sure. Um, but went to school for acting and went to the city and was an actor for a while and mm -hmm. slowly kind of came to the realization that that wasn't, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't really happening. Uh, I didn't think I had the imagination or the risk taking or well, I don't know. I just didn't think tough, I could do it. You know? um, Let me ask you this. As a child, as a dancer. Yeah. Who turned you on? Who did you want to be? Who did you want to go dance for? Well, I saw Martha Graham, her company, okay. perform in Syracuse, and that just rang every bell in my yeah, brain, you yeah. know, uh, about space and bodies and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think I probably couldn't have put words on it at that point. Uh, but then I had a friend who recruited me for a community theater production of Jesus Christ Superstar. <sighs> And, I did that in the seventh grade. Yeah, and so somehow the idea of storytelling and movement and dance, all of it came together for me. And that's why I went to college for theater. It just yeah. turned me on. And um, so I came back to Ithaca after a couple years in New York. I had grown up in a really small farming community. Where? Morrisville, New York. Okay, yeah. One stoplight. My dad taught at the Ag <laughs> Tech School. And uh, Ithaca was big to me. Yeah. So New York really scared me. Uh, sure. I and I, I kind of came running back to Ithaca and Rachel Lampert was at the kitchen theater. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, um, I think Norm Johnson just before Rachel, right. I Norm, came in, Norm invented the kitchen theater, but I came in, I think maybe during Rachel's first year, I came back to Ithaca mm -hmm. and they were so, I was so fortunate to get cast in a lot of plays at the kitchen. And yeah. I really, that's where I spread my wings as a theater artist, I really under Rachel. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. as an actor, and then she gave me so much opportunity. I was interested in new plays, yeah. and I kind of administrated a really small new play festival at the Kitchen Theater one year. Uh -huh. I don't think anyone even knew about it, <laughs> but I got my feet wet there, you know, and when we picked a new play, it was actually Katie Clark, you know, Katie Clark Gray. Katie Clark, sure, yeah. It was a terrific playwright. Yeah, she wrote her first play, and she won our little playwriting contest here. It was a play called Francis Bacon. Right, I remember Do you remember that. this? Of course I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About the painter. Exactly, Yeah. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, we chose that play, mm -hmm. and I said to Rachel, well, we have to find a director to direct the production, because the winning play would get a production at the Kitchen Theater. Yeah. And she said, you should direct it. And at the time, I was teaching acting, because I was acting, and, you know, Ithaca College had asked me if I would teach, like, an intro to acting class right. part-time, which I was loving and kind of discovering like, oh, you know what? I think I'm better at teaching than I am at actually doing this. That I felt like I could, I could see it, a young actor and say, oh, 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 I see what you can do. Yeah. Let me help you do that and do that more clearly and more effectively. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, I'm better at this than I am at actually acting myself. Um, so Rachel said, well, why don't you, why don't you direct it? And I thought she was out of her mind. Um, and she trusted me. Yeah. Uh, I owe a lot to Rachel. She she said, give it a shot. She she took a huge risk mm -hmm. with someone who had never directed a play. Right. And I directed Francis Bacon. And yeah. thank God for Katie Clark, who was an amazing playwright. Because she I think is, yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. And it was such a great play right. that it didn't matter um, that I was, you know, floundering in the sandbox a little. And That's, um, how, you, that's how you learn. I mean, it's it's... Directing is the chance that everybody wants yeah. to get, and it's kind of actually how I started in playwriting also. A, a, a professor at TC3 mm -hmm. loved my fiction. He said, you should write a play. And I said, nah, I don't write plays. He says, I'll let you direct, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, I get to direct. Okay, 
the heck about the play. I'm just going to write something just so I can direct this. It was terrible. But and you learn by doing this sort of thing. It's like you look back at it and go, I could have done that. I could have done this. This is what I missed. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. So. And how many theaters are going to give you the chance, the space, the resources? to fail like that, to say, like, let right. me give it a shot. And Rachel, the kitchen was so young, and um, Rachel was so game, mm-hmm. so game, always still yeah. so game for yeah. new stuff and new ideas, and she let me try it. And yeah. Bob Moss came to see it, and he said, have you ever thought about studying directing? And I thought, no, <laughs> <laughs> but why not? And I really wanted to, I loved teaching, I loved my students. Yeah. And uh, I had met the love of my life here, yeah. Jerry Merskin, who teaches at IC. So I knew I was going to stick around. Right. And Bob was at Syracuse University. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you come interview for the MFA program? So it seemed like all forces were aligning to, uh, if I had an MFA, I knew I could continue to teach. Right. And I really liked directing. So uh, I pursued my MFA in directing at Syracuse under Bob. Yeah. I just lucked out that he was there at that time, mm-hmm. and I tried to assist every director who would come through Syracuse stage, which was really my education. Right. I mean, the classes were great, but honestly, it was being in the theater, yeah. sitting next to directors, and one of the directors who came through was Kevin Moriarty. I remember Kevin, yes. Yeah, he, he directed probably the most insane version of Midsummer Night's Dream I've ever seen. Yeah, all those Keith Haring chalk drawings uh, yeah, on the side exactly, of the exactly, yes. On the yeah. side of the hangar theater. Yeah. So Kevin directed a production of Wit, Margaret Edson's Wit. I saw that. At Syracuse Stage. Yeah. And um I was directing my MFA thesis at the time mm. and when I found out he was coming through, he had just been named the new artistic director at the Hangar. Yeah. And I was a student, a grad student at SU, and I knew he was coming through Syracuse Stage. Mm-hmm. So I went to the um, production manager's office and said, I need to assist Kevin Moriarty. And they said, no, you can't do that. It conflicts with your thesis. It was probably one of the only times in my life I didn't take no for an answer. Thank God. Yeah. And uh, I went into his first day of rehearsal and I sat down. And we had crossed paths kind of informally at the hangar years right. before. Like, I remember shaking his hand through a car window in the rain, you know. <laughs> and I thought, he's not going to remember me. Friends for life. <laughs> and uh, I sat down behind him at the meet and greet. And he turned around and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm a grad student here. I met you a few years ago. And he said, why aren't you assisting me? I said, well, it conflicts with my thesis. And he waved his hand in front of my face and said, yeah, whatever, whatever. Sit over here. Nice. And uh, that was the beginning of a nine-year mentorship where he became my mentor yeah. day in and day out. Yeah. Um, and Isn't it great when the universe just aligns to push you in the direction you're supposed to be in? Oh, yeah. So I owe much of who I am today to three people, Rachel Lampert, Kevin Moriarty, and Bob Moss. You know, yeah. those three yeah. people really took me by the hand and said, come over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Actually, I kind of feel... Well, I remember, I just remembered where, because we were talking before, before the interview started, about where we started to know each other yeah. in town, because we've been here. And yeah. in a town like Ithaca, you just intersect with people, and yeah. you kind of forget the, the genesis. And I remember, as soon as you mentioned Bob Moss, it was this uh, two-day directing workshop that you guys hosted, and I knew nothing about directing, but I wanted to so badly, because to me, that opened up the dynamics of playwriting. And you guys lectured us for a little bit and gave us exercises and open scenes. And I remember the open scenes, these three lines of complete, absolute, non-sequential gibberish, and said, make something out of this. And I looked at you guys, and I forget, I think it might have been you, just said, just make something out of this. Come up with something. 
every, you know, whatever it is counts. Right. And that kind of broke it open for me. It was like, oh my God, I can actually do this. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that's becoming a theater artist, regardless of the lines people draw, director, yeah. playwright, I mean, regardless, mm -hmm. just theater artist, learning how to do that. Right. Bob Moss, same thing. He kind of throws you into the, <laughs> the deep end of the pool mm -hmm. and says, make a story. And you kind of look at him with a blank face, like, um, um, I don't really know what you mean. Yeah. And you learn how to swim because you're in the water. <laughs> yeah. And he did that with me for three years. And the combination of doing exercises, like you just mentioned, yeah. with uh, assisting people really is how I learned how to put a story together. And it happened to be as a director, but um, like you said, when did I transition into playwriting? I, it's really hard to put my finger on it. Right. Um, but I know that those three years with Bob is when I learned both. Mm -hmm. what, what it would mean to put a story together on the page, what it would mean to put a story together on, on your feet. You, you kind of have to, if you're going to be good at any of this stuff, you kind of have to know all the rest of it because you can't work in a vacuum. Right. I, I, mean, I know there are some people out there listening to this who are going to say, well, that's not true because I work in a vacuum and I'm wonderful at what I do. Yeah, all right, terrific. But for the rest of us... Yeah, it's when I started learning playwriting, because I was a writer. I was a short story writer. I was a novelist. And all my life, I wanted to spin stories. And the theaters always fascinated me. I was the only kid out of my crew who would actually go down to New York and go to the half-price tickets thing and just pick out tickets for whatever looked good. I was the only one, because seeing people live on stage, you couldn't beat it. And I wanted to do this. Um, and learning to, to, to playwright was one thing, but until I actually learned how to direct, until I actually learned how to stage manage, paint sets, clean things, oh, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff, um, it didn't really come together. And it's, 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 it's a conglomeration of all the parts that make the one part as good as it can be. Yeah, I mean, when I'm writing, um, when I'm playwriting, even if I'm by myself behind a, mm -hmm. my laptop, so much of my brain is thinking about the team that's going to put this together. I'm thinking oh. about the actors and what they're what they're doing in that scene. I'm thinking about the director and where they might be putting people in space. I'm thinking about the designers. I'm thinking about, you know, choreographers. I'm thinking yeah. about music. I'm thinking, you know, how are other people going to feed into what I'm writing right now? Um, so much of uh, my my understanding of storytelling is about that that collaborative team. Yeah. So I never feel alone behind the behind the computer it feels yeah. a little odd to me to feel like I'm creating something by myself um, so even like the most recent play that I'm working on right now I, I always hit a point where I have to reach out to you know your circle of friends that you say yeah. hey can you can we all get together in a room can you help me hear this can I would you read it sure, out loud yeah. and be brutally honest with me about what's working and what's not working because to me theater is such a collaborative art form and it is it's like it's, and to me it's the most but the most collaborative because Novelists write in a vacuum and they throw it at an editor and the editor comes back and says, change this, you misspelled that, blah, 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 blah. With theater, you put it into a room full of people and they just go wild with it if you have a good crew. Mm -hmm. And you sit back and you watch and you go, yeah, that could work, this can't work, no, that's not going to change, whatever, that sort of thing. But it's a group of people all making your work grow. Yeah, no, absolutely. I had this, we were talking about Sammy and Me, which is a musical that I co-wrote with Eric Jordan Young about, well, we started back in like 2006. And I remember the moment we started to talk about it. We, he was, grew up with a fascination of Sammy Davis Jr. And he asked me to help him direct a one-man 
musical based on right. the music of Sammy sure. Davis Jr. And when we started in his apartment in New York, you know, it's a one-room apartment, and we're just pushing the furniture out of the way, just pushing mm-hmm. sofas up to the wall, and uh, neither one of us are, quote, playwrights. He's an actor, I'm a director. Uh, and we sat down and said, okay, who, what, where? Yeah. <laughs> You're... Five years old, it's 11 o'clock at night, you're watching the Flip Wilson show, your mom wants you to go to bed, you don't want to go to bed. I remember the Flip Wilson um, show. And he would improvise. Yeah. And I've got my phone camera, you know, videotaping. Mm-hmm. And then we would jump in and say, okay, go, okay, go back, go back. Do that moment again, but this time, let's add this. Yeah. Let's add this obstacle. Let's change this circumstance. Did you know anything about Sammy Davis Jr. before you started this? Very little, very little. I mean, Eric had grown up on Sammy Davis Jr., right. And he kind of handed me a crate of music, you know, albums, movies, mm-hmm. watch all of this, and books. You know, we read, we read so many biographies, autobiographies, biographies. There's so much text about Sammy's sure, yeah, life. Yeah. Um, and we were interested in, in Sammy Davis Jr., but we were also interested in Eric's growing up in Buffalo, New York, you know, as like the one African-American kid on a white street at a white school with white friends and like watching Sammy Davis on TV, who was like the one African-American guy with all these white guys around him and sort of what does it mean to be the only one? What is that story about? Uh, What does that mean? I mean, I I always remember watching Sammy Davis because I was a TV addict when I was a kid and I would see him all the time and it just seemed, whenever whenever there was an African-American person on TV, there was a special note about that sort of thing because they did stand out so much and they mm-hmm. did. Yeah. I, re- I remember that TV show, Julia, and they made a big thing about it because she was the first African-American woman mm-hmm. to get her own TV show right. or, you know, it's seemed strange and it seemed odd. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the first, like you just said, Sammy was the first yeah. in a lot of things. Uh, um, and we were interested in what it would mean for someone to be a pioneer mm-hmm. and that clearly he's going to make mistakes. And he's right. going to blunder and he's going to say things or laugh at jokes that are not funny. Exactly. And yeah. um, he took a lot of flack for that, especially in hindsight. People, you know, people have strong opinions about Sammy Davis Jr. and right. the choices that he made and the impact that those choices have on African-American entertainers today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were interested in all of that. And that's really, for me, my transition from directing to playwriting happened yeah. right in that moment where it all, it all felt very uh, nebulous to me because we were not behind a computer. Mm-hmm. We, were, we had colored index cards all over a dance studio floor right. with a marker of, with events of like, this is where this might happen. No, move this over there, move this yeah. over there. And then putting it up on the wall and a lot of videotaping. And it, it wasn't one person sitting down behind a computer to write a play. Right. Um, How long did it take from Genesis to the first time you put it up with a paying audience? Well, it took us probably about a year. And um, once again, so many thanks to Kevin Moriarty, who um, I asked for time off at the hangar. I was mm. on the staff at the hangar at the time, and I said, hey, I need, can I take two weeks off to go work with Eric on this piece? And Kevin, once again, in his typical way, said, yeah, 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 whatever. What are you working on? <laughs> I said, well, we're writing this musical about Sammy Davis Jr. And he said, well, why aren't we doing it here? I said, well, because we don't have a script. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He said, okay, never. what do you need? You need like a studio? You need a, a script. It's a detail. Don't worry about you it. You need yeah. a music director. You need a video camera. What do you need? 
Um, and so provided a couple of weeks of support for us to figure it out and, and, and play with it yeah. on our feet. And it was a co-production with Musical Fair Theater in Buffalo, New York. So over the course of about a year, we tried it out in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And then we made a lot of changes over about six months between Buffalo and Ithaca. Right. And then we made a lot more changes. It got picked up by a producer in New York who optioned, you know, took the option to produce it in New York. And we worked on it again. Um, it had two more productions, one at the National Black Theater Festival and then at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. Right. So it had a nice run. Um, when we're now we're looking at maybe reimagining it, we let it go for a while. and Sometimes you have to. I mean, it sounds like you worked on it intensely for so long yeah. that you got to step back, take a breather, and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes. Yeah, we got our hopes really high around 2008 yeah. because there was this producer attached, and he had been one of the producers on Color Purple, and he was mm -hmm. really excited about it. And uh, the economy dropped out from under us. No kidding. And yeah. uh, and I think that was... Theater funding. What a great concept. <laughs> How many times have you heard the story where people say, we were headed to Broadway and then it didn't happen? I mean, it's yeah. just a ridiculous story that everyone tells. Okay, so let's, let's, let's make the world's clunkiest segue here. Um, talking about f hanging, you know, 40 lights on the grid and making a big production out of all this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, these, are, these are plays with multi multiple characters. And one of the things I've noted about your work over the years is that you seem to have a lot of uh, plays that are single character. Okay, you know, uh, I Am My Own Wife, um, Sammy and Me, of course, right? Chesapeake, No Child, that sort of thing. Um, what is it? Do you just not like that many actors or, or what? I would ask the same question. What is it about me that I all of the one-person shows land in my lap? It happened by accident. It wasn't something that I sought out. I love them. I mean, I have to admit that I... When I think about the beginnings of theater, mm. I imagine human beings around the campfire saying, I was hunting today, and here's me with my bow, and this is the deer over here like this. And then I lifted up my bow, and the deer started running, you know, and acting out the deer and acting yeah. out their own bow and arrow and then being the tree and being the rock. And uh, I imagine that the start of theater was probably like that. And yeah. I, I think that... To me, the most powerful tool in the theater is the audience's mm. imagination. Sure. Yeah. We all know that. I mean, whatever you, when you're reading a Stephen King novel and you're thinking, it, what's it? Oh my God, it's so scary. And we all have a different image of what it would be in our heads. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the very end, when it comes out and he describes it all of a sudden as a spider with hair and yeah. 17 eyes, you're like, oh, cheap. You know, I, I feel like. <laughs> Um, no offense to Stephen King, he's amazing. No, I, um, I have problems with some of his endings, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, in fact, I threw a book across the, uh, the room once just because the ending was so cheap. But anyway. So my favorite theater is the theater where you have an actor and a chair and a glass of water. Yeah. And everything else is in your imagination. That, to me, is powerful. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the actor doesn't even need to move one foot. Whenever I start working with an actor... Uh, in a multiple character play, they think they need to take a step to the right, right to play the next character. The fascinating thing is that you don't. All you have to do is change your focus, mm -hmm. and the audience moves your character a foot to the right. That's crazy. That's the power of the imagination. And uh, I was lucky enough that, uh, when did it start? I guess I did The Soup Comes Last, maybe it was the first one with Rachel Lambert. Once okay, again, yeah. there's Rachel well, Lambert in my past is, yeah. making it all happen who said, hey, let's, would you direct, 
she had written like 200 pages about her trip to China where right. she directed West Side Story. I remember that. That went through a, a bit of a development process from what I remember, yeah. Yeah, and we cobbled down that yeah. the writing from 200 pages down, and I think that was my first experience. And because she and I had so much fun together, all of a sudden other theaters were hiring me to do the same thing, mm -hmm. where they would say, oh, she did that one-person play. Get her to do Chesapeake. Get yeah. her to do, you know, and Eric came to me, and he saw I Am My Own Wife at the hangar and was so excited about it that he said, would you help me with the Sammy Davis Jr. piece? So one thing leads to another, sure, yeah. and I just had a lot of experience doing these multiple character plays that I never anticipated, but I, I like it. I have a good time, and I figure, hey, why not have a brand? <laughs> why not? If people yeah. know what you're good at, then yeah. that's, that's not hurt, hurtful. How is the experience of the dynamic different? Because right, in a quote normal play, you've got you know yeah. five, six actors, okay, and, yeah. and doors slamming and wigs being thrown around and all that sort of fun stuff. But with one actor on stage, there is a commitment to focus that has to be there. You don't have other actors, other pieces of set, other things that can... Help the audience keep their focus throughout the timeline of how long they're sitting there. Mm -hmm. You've got one actor up there. Yeah. All right. One of the things that absolutely terrifies me, for me, the, the Durang actor's nightmare is walking up on stage and being the only person up there. How does that work? I mean, what, between you and the actor, what's that process like? Well, I believe Michael Mayer, who's a great director, and um, I'm probably misquoting him, but he said, you cast the right actor and you get out of the way. <laughs> mm. And I think um, when I'm directing a one-person show, so much rests on the actor. And I feel like their mirror or their eyes and ears in a way. And I'm trying to be the test audience member. But most of what I'm doing when I'm directing a one-person show is telling the actor, here's what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. This is what I see. This is what I heard. Right. So that then, because actors, they're my favorite people on the planet. They're so smart. They know what they're doing. They know how to tell a good story. And if I can reflect back to them as their mirror to say, um, I'm getting that you're really angry in that moment or that you, you want to break up with her. Right. And the actor can say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to communicate. Let me try that again. Um, so, and I also think that my years as a dancer, <laughs> going back to right. that, um, I often feel like a sculptor in a one-person show okay. where I'm almost sculpting the human body in space to make shapes and gestures that um, are going to tell the story almost like if you shut your ears, you could follow the story, okay. that you could see it in space. Um, sometimes I call it like a game of concentration that in the first 15 minutes, you know, you turn over the apple, you turn it over, and then you turn over the pair mm -hmm. and then you turn over something else and you're looking for the first apple right. so as an audience member i think it's like a game of concentration where you say oh that's the character mike right he looks like that yeah and then you meet oh this is the character gary oh i see he looks gotcha. like that yeah. now we're back to mike remember mike okay now you're mm -hmm. gonna meet susan now we're back to mike you know and so it's a game of concentration <clears throat> and so i often feel like i'm building the apples and the pears and the, right. the pictures the stage pictures so that the audience can build their own game or fill their, their imagination. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that gets me with one-person shows is you say, pick the right actor and just let them go, okay? Um, which, that's not all there is to it, kids. Don't <laughs> do this at home. 
But I remember seeing several shows. Uh, I remember seeing Chesapeake. And I remember, I didn't see your version of I Am My Own Wife. I saw the Broadway version. Nice. Okay. But the specificity, when you're talking about an actor changing focus or an actor going from one person to the next and a different embodiment, which could be the drop of a shoulder, mm-hmm. which could be the tilt of a head, which could be any small thing that denotes this person, change of a voice is... The technique has to be spot on, and it has to be distinct, but it can't be overdone. It can't be a wild costume change followed by, you know, some dramatic pose. It has to be subtle, and it ha- the audience has to be able to follow this. Who comes up with that, and how do you maintain the specificity of this? That is, yeah, I think probably the the smartest question, it's the best question, is how do you, how do you ignite the imagination with shape and gesture, mm-hmm. and how do you suspend the disbelief? Right. Because let's be honest, you watch a person change, you know, just move their head from the left to the right and move their shoulder over, are we really going to buy it? Are we really going to buy that that human being is now somebody else? Right. You're really asking a lot of the audience. You talk about willing suspension of disbelief. But this kicks back to um, some... I, I want to keep going with this, but this kicks back to something that you talked about earlier and audience disbelief. Mm-hmm. And I know from directing my own productions and talking to my actors and they get worried about, is this going to work? Is that going to work? Your audience is 93% there. They bought the ticket. Mm-hmm. They put on the good clothes. Yep. They put themselves in the seat. They know what they're they in for. It. They they walk in wanting to believe. Yeah. You don't. It's it's like church. People walk in and they are with you. Go God. Okay. <laughs> um, and they walk in and they sit down and you can hand them almost anything and they will run with you. It takes all. Actually, it takes a lot to destroy their belief right, right? I'm, I'm not you know, it's in most cases this is true i mean they're they're your audience they're already there right it often feels to me with a one-person show like a rubik's cube that you're looking at the red side character a mm. and you've got to do all the character analysis and preparation that you would do if you were playing that part all night yeah. long and what does that character want um what makes it any character in any play believable is that they need something. They have a human need or desire that we all have that we identify with. Um, And then you flip the cube over (laughs) and you're on the green side and it's the character of Christine and she wants something entirely different. Exactly. And so I think that the, the, the reason that these one person shows are real tour de forces is the fact that you have an actor who can flip from a character who wants freedom Mm -hmm. and is fighting tooth and nail to get it. And then you flip that cube over and they can instantly play the other character who wants that person to marry them. It's like, boom, 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 boom. And they can flip from one human intention to the next. Um, Because I think if all you're doing is, as David Mamet would say, funny voices, uh, we're we're not going to buy it. We're just not going to buy it. So a lot of my work is about that with actors. Mm-hmm. And uh, I use something called Discovery. My students make fun of me. In fact, they made T-shirts that said, like, the Dan Studio of Discovery. <laughs> um, but Tell it's us a, about Discovery. It's a tool I really like. Um, 
you know Michael Shirtliff, who is the famous acting teacher? Yes. Mm -hmm. He has it in his book, Audition. It's one of his 10 guideposts. So I didn't make it up. I steal it from Shirtliff. But he uh, talks about discovery as the moment that a human being learns something new. And it could even be that you've lived with someone for 30 years and you put a, I think his example is you put a piece of grapefruit down in front of your husband and he says, I don't like grapefruit. And you look at him and say, what? Mm. That for 30 years you've been putting grapefruit down in front of your husband and then he tells you that is a moment of where the human being has to stop. Right. And something happens to the breath. Something happens to the spine where they have to take that moment to actually absorb the new information. And to me, those moments are the moments of drama. The moments where an, a character learns something new and everyone in the theater goes, oh, so here I am giving away my trick, but in one person shows, yeah. I change the character, the character body mm -hmm. on a discovery. That as a character discovers something, right. the actor's body shifts into the other character to as they discover the new information. So it's a, it's a physical manifestation of the internal change exactly. going through a character's psyche. So, you know. Because in any discovery, a human being's body shifts in their breath and their spine. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I need to change character. I need to change yeah. the breath. I need to change the spine anyway. So two birds with one stone. Um, that's my little... There you go. Trick to directing one person. Well, there you go, folks. You've just gotten a free acting lesson from <laughs> IC Professor Wendy Dan. Well, Wendy Dan, it has been remarkably wonderful having you on the show today. And uh, good luck with the Liberator. Please let us know when it's going up and where and keep us abreast of all the, the good things that, that are happening with that because I'm dying to see this. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming to sit with us. Thank you, George. It's my pleasure.